It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, June 4th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. President Biden pleads with Congress to do something about mass shootings. It's time for the Senate to do something. I'm Kevin Cork. A historic infant formula shortage grips the nation, frustrating families across America. Had they sounded the alarm sooner and told parents about this, I would have changed my strategy for feeding my baby. I probably would have delayed supplementing with formula. I would have tried to save that formula for parents who needed it. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. President Biden and the First Lady walked out of the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Uvalde, Texas Sunday after a mass service and heard this. As that crowd yelled, do something, President Biden told them, we will. Thursday, in an evening address from the White House, he told Congress what the crowd told him in Uvalde. This time, we have to take the time to do something. And this time, it's time for the Senate to do something. The Senate, at least eight members of the Senate, four Republicans and four Democrats, spent this week finding where they could do something, working on a framework that might overcome a 60-vote threshold. Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy, one of the lead negotiators, wrote in an opinion piece for FoxNews.com that he's willing to pass incremental change, like tightening background checks, helping states pass red flag laws, providing more mental health resources for young men, and paying for security upgrades at schools. Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram told me this week. This is the most robust conversation that they have had on firearms up here in decades. As that Senate group works, the House Judiciary Committee also tackled gun legislation this week, advancing a series of bills much closer aligned with President Biden's demands that would raise the purchase age for guns like AR-15s to 21 and outlaw high-capacity magazines. Now, Speaker Nancy Pelosi also announced a hearing soon on an assault weapons ban bill. Now, those ideas will not pass the Senate. They may not even get a vote in the Senate. So let's start this week with more of my conversation with Chad program on what is likely to come from that demand to do something. This is an effort by the House of Representatives to get on the record about this. Uh, Democrats were insistent to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that they had to do something. You know, initially, uh, you know, she was kind of punting to the Senate. Uh, She was Mm -hmm. basically saying there was going to be a bill uh, by Lucy McBath, the Democratic congresswoman from Georgia, that would deal with, uh, you know, persons uh, involved in domestic violence and whether or not they could have access to firearms. So that was a pretty, you know, narrow bill there, you know, but that was going to be the bill because she was waiting to see what they could come up with in the Senate, something that needs 60 votes. Meantime, she was getting an earful from most of her caucus about, you know, just don't stand there, do something. So even though these bills will pass the House, these bills will not be the legislative solution. These bills will focus on, as you say, uh, increasing the age for the assault weapons ban. 
the elimination mm-hmm. of bump stocks. A bump stock mm-hmm. is something that you prop up a, a semi-automatic yeah. or Which a was handled weapon. after the Las Vegas shooting. Yes, exactly. Trump, that's exactly what the, the Trump administration sort of did it through executive order, but courts have sort of said maybe they, they weren't allowed to do that. Is that kind of why there's a legislative solution here? Right. It's always better to do it in legislation yeah, than it yeah. is by executive fiat. Uh, so that's right. part of it there. Um, you know, some, some background check things, as you say. Mm-hmm. Most of these things will, will pass the House, but they probably won't pass the Senate. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see in the House, right? Because there are some Democrats in the House, some vulnerable Democrats in the House, who may not be fully on board with some of these proposals from from Speaker Pelosi. No? Well, well, look at someone like Kurt Schrader, you know, right. a moderate who Democrat. Who lo- just lost uh, his primary. But, but, but he lost his primary, you know, <laughs> right. to, a, to, to a liberal Democrat. But I was thinking of someone like you know, Jared yeah. Golden of Maine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what about Henry Cuellar? Right. You see, who we still don't know whether or not he's right. won his primary. Right. You know, from last week, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it went to a runoff and the runoff has still not been called. And there's less than a couple hundred votes uh, separating him and Jessica mm-hmm. Cisneros. So you're right. We don't we don't know. But there's probably a couple of Republicans who might be interested in mm-hmm. some of these bills. Uh, you know, Brian Fitzpatrick, uh, who is mm-hmm. a uh, a congressman from Pennsylvania, has signaled some you know interest maybe in the assault weapons. And uh, I think has as well. Right, right. Chris Jacobs, who's a freshman Republican Mm. from Western New York near Buffalo, somebody else who said, I don't want to go in and confiscate weapons, but, you know, maybe we could we could do something on that. So it could be sort of an interesting bipartisan vote in that aspect. There'll be a handful on each side that maybe break ranks. And depends how these bills are put together. Right. You know, is that's ultimately what always matters. You see, is do they do a couple together? Is it one big omnibus package? Are they individual bills? But the House is likely to pass this next week and it is likely to go no further. So. The action, so to speak, would be on the Senate side, right? And it was a group, I think, of four senators that expanded to eight senators this week, four Republicans, four Democrats. And, you know, you and I were talking earlier about this op-ed piece uh, that appeared on FoxNews.com written by uh, Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut who has long been an advocate for stricter gun laws. And even in that piece, he sort of concedes, listen, we're not going to be able to go as far as many Democrats want to go. So what is it? Uh, that this uh, group may be able to come up with? They might get into background checks. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to be a lot of red flag laws and mental mm-hmm. health issues. Uh, probably nothing on assault weapons, although, you know, do, do they go back into maybe the raising of the age question? That's what I was going to ask. Know. Does that have bipartisan buy-in? You see, the that, I'm, well, like I mentioned AR-15? a few people there. You know, that, that that's something that's, that, that's starting to move. You know, and, and the question is what they will agree upon Mm-hmm. Is what they think can pass and can get sixty votes. Sixty votes, yeah. That's you see, you see when 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 they you know the reason these talks are so vague is because nobody really knows what that universe is like. And if they wake up and they have, say, forty seven, forty eight Democrats, and maybe not you know Joe Manchin or somebody you know on board here uh, because uh, firearms are very important in West Virginia, mm-hmm. and then they have you know ten, twelve, thirteen Republicans. You know, I will say you know this is the most robust conversation that they have had on firearms up here. In decades, and is that really? includes after Sandy Hook, which That's is what I was extraordinary. Gonna, is this, so th- this really, in your view, seems more intense than even other tragedies that that Congress has talked about. At least in terms of legislation. Now we have had okay. instances where people like Chris Murphy, who went to the Senate floor, mm-hmm. um, this is a couple of years after Newtown, talked about guns ad nauseum, was up all night. You, you, you know, so he. That, that's one example. You had the sit-in 
in the House of Representatives in 2016. John Lewis, the late congressman from Georgia, John Larson, Democrat of Connecticut, also engineered this on the on the House floor, uh, kind of commandeered, took over the House floor for more than 24 hours. Uh, but those weren't real conversations about guns. Those were protests. This was a mm-hmm. way to bring attention to something. What we're seeing here, uh, even in the markup at the House of Representatives with the bills that will probably pass the House but won't go anywhere in the Senate, you're actually dealing with legislation. It's been a long time since they've actually had a firearms bill pass. And that's where I think you have to go back to, you know, the, the crime bill in 1994 with the then Judiciary Committee Chairman Biden. Uh, and then when the assault weapons ban expired in 2004, it was a 10 year sunset on that. Right. You know, those are probably the most prominent conversations we've had about addressing the gun crisis. And think but about how many not, things, even after Columbine. But there there's not going to be something like that. There's not going to be an assault weapons ban that comes no, out of this. No, 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 no. But I mean, changing the age, eh, I, I wouldn't rule it out. It, it's hard mm-hmm. to see. Yet, you know, again, uh, you know, I used the term universe a few minutes ago. The universe is not yet formed. You know, they're talking over what the universe looks like here first. And once they do that, then they kind of get a sense about what can pass and what can't. So what's the I mean, we talk about the timeline in the House, right? They're going to move. They can move very quickly. They don't have filibusters. It's a simple majority. And so we expect that to pass this week. But the Senate timeline is open ended at the same time. And I think we talked a little bit about this last week. There is a bit of a shelf life here, right? I mean, there is sort of an assumption that they need an agreement in place this month, the, oh, in the next couple of weeks? You know, in theory, yes. But, you know, a lot of people thought that this would go away just because the recess hit right after both Buffalo and, and Texas and now Tulsa, frankly. But, you know, Senator Murphy said to some of us, uh, you know, a few days ago, he said, I think actually being on recess helps. You, mm-hmm. you know, we can actually, you know, have frank conversations away from the press and, and do this. So uh, maybe you look at the August recess, maybe as the goal okay. here. Uh, I mean, things around here will pass when they pass. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> it just, sure. uh, you know, and anybody, you know, who really understands this place knows that, you know, a lot of times Congress gets criticized. Oh, they're out of session for a week. Uh, how, how why aren't they there working on our problems? <laughs> well, the, well, the reason is that. There isn't a solution. And just because if you were to force everybody there, you know, it doesn't necessarily get them to the table. Uh, You know, so there's no reason to be there. And and even in this instance, even though they're having earnest negotiations, they don't even need to be there. This thing, if it's going to happen, it will happen when it happens. And I know that sounds as vague as as it is. I've seen them pass big bills, important Mm -hmm. bills in the middle of the night. First thing on Saturday morning, 630 on Saturday morning after being in all, all night. I remember years ago talking to Shelley Moore Capito when she was in the House of Representatives, now the Republican senator from West Virginia. And there was a bill that was very important to her. And she had just been in Congress a couple of years. And she said, oh, you know, shouldn't we, you know, debate that bill in the late afternoon, you know, when everybody can see. And and her, her bill was going to come up late at night. And she said, no, just the idea that, you know, after you, you learn after some time, if you get the chance to put your bill, whatever it is, on mm-hmm. the floor and get a debate and get a vote, that's as good as you can do around here. And if it's 11 yeah. o'clock at night, so be it, because there's a lot of bills that don't even get to that stage. So well, they'll, even, they'll do it when they do it. Even I've had to kind of concede this week, much as we don't like to, as, as members of the press who demand transparency and, and people should know what what, are, what debates are happening in, in Congress, that these things have a tendency to, to be much more productive when members maybe are not in the Capitol building, you know, getting uh, – you know, shouted at by, by guys like us, right, as they leave every single meeting and sort of the instant response about what was said and what wasn't said. 
Jared, you're right. You know, there was an awful lot of consternation about the infrastructure bill and and kind of the process uh, to get to the infrastructure bill, which took a long time, frankly, and that Joe Manchin, a Democrat of West Virginia, would have people to his boat in the Washington Harbor here. And they would and John Thune, the Republican whip, would work the grill and so on and so forth. You know, mm-hmm. they did all these things. And we didn't know that those things were going on until ex post facto. And they would grill mm-hmm. hamburgers and have people or there was a time when they were negotiating out, uh, you know, in the dead of winter on something on this. I remember Lisa Murkowski said uh, they, they opened up all the windows, even though it was freezing, you know, because we're in the middle of the COVID, you know. And, and so sometimes that's how things really get done by having these types of conversations off stage. We'll certainly have that to talk about next week. Uh, between uh, now and our next chat, Chad, have a, a good weekend, a restful weekend, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone, anyone for that matter, who recalls a time when baby formula was next to impossible to find on store shelves. And yet, here, now, in 2022, that's precisely what's happening across America, as a historic infant formula shortage has sent parents into a panic and the Biden administration on a global search to fill the gap. But there's growing frustration over how we got here in the first place and over what many believe was a woefully belated response by the Biden White House. Dr. Christopher Duggan is a professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and the director of the Center for Nutrition at Boston Children's Hospital. I have not seen anything to such an extent. However, it is important to note that this is not the first time that there's been a recall for powdered infant formula based on concerns about bacterial contamination. Uh, A similar bacterial pathogen was isolated from powdered formula, including uh, reports of deaths of patients with uh, prematurity and therefore decreased immune function. So that part has happened before. But what's unique, of course, in today's recall or this this season's recall, of course, is the component of the recall on top of an environment that has led to this shortage, which includes, of course, pandemic associated uh, restrictions and limitations of the supply chain, uh, but also, as you well know, a consolidation of manufacturers um, from, I say, a dozen manufacturers to a limited number. When I think about recalls, and I think I'm like most people, doctor, they happen from time to time. You expect them to sort of be fleshed out and things are more or less back to normal in a fairly short order of time. But unfortunately, in this circumstance, it appears that we sort of had a shutdown back in February. We're now into June. Was there any expectation that this would last as long as it has and create the sort of havoc that we're seeing? No, I think that's clearly um, been far beyond what anyone expected uh, with the initial uh, recall in the factory shutdown in February. And uh, as you and your listeners certainly know, the timeline between when concerns were first raised at this factory and when federal um, regulators, the US FDA, of course, um, put words into action, uh, really needs to be investigated in a very transparent um, uh, way, because I think all of us, all families need to have complete faith in what we feed our babies. It's the reason, of course, that infant formulas are under FDA regulation in the first place, because before formulas were under its regulation, a variety of problems would exist with homemade formulas, non-standard recipes, um, and contaminations. 
And when you have a circumstance like we have now where there's a particular facility where we're looking at some 40 percent of the manufacture of American formula that goes all around the country and it's servicing not just the folks who might go into your local supermarket, but also people who are on public assistance. It's really created an absolute scarcity that's so shocking, I think, for most people. Let me ask you about your experience vis-a-vis the parents that you talk to. They must be beside themselves in many cases with real terror because if you're a new parent and you're unfamiliar with how this all goes you're just wondering how on earth am i going to feed my baby even if you're an experienced parent this has to be unsettling yes it's it's very anxiety producing um for a lot of different reasons of course and and the way i think about the parents that i discuss and and counsel on this uh is in two two general ways if on the one hand, you're, you know, like 95% of American families and have kids who are generally healthy, but um, who are on, who are receiving infant formula for one reason or another. Largely, those healthy kids can be taken care of for, through a variety of different types of what we would call intact cow's milk-based protein formulas. But the problem is that the formula companies have so aggressively marketed different formulas into different niches, it's very difficult for families to really compare and contrast what's available on the market. So let's say that your formula that you were raising your infant on is suddenly unavailable. It's not always easy to identify a comparable formula if your child is healthy. And if your child has a significant gastrointestinal problem, which is the types of kids we take care of here at Boston Children's Hospital, it becomes doubly anxiety provoking because the availability of these life-sustaining formulas has also come under um, play. I think the, the, the real remedy perhaps for this particular circumstance, and I know the government's talking about uh, Operation Fly Formula, they're really looking for formula just about everywhere they can find it, whether it be the UK, whether it be Australia, yes. uh, should we as American consumers uh, accept that as a, as an equivalent product? Is it safe for Americans to consume? I assume it is since the government's involved. And if that's the case, doctor, shouldn't we have that available all the time? Well, it, it has been available for, for high-income families. Um, there, are con- there, there have been concerns among um, certain populations in our country who are feeding their child infant formula. And there's always been kind of a trickle of formulas coming from Europe because of concerns about different uh, products that are being used in U.S. formulas versus European formulas. But it's really only been available to those uh, high-resource families who can afford to import it. So it's certainly safe. And I think our colleagues in Europe have a very strong regulatory uh, background to assess safety. Whether it needs to be done uh, all the time is a little bit of a different question. But the way I think about this um, is, let's put ourselves in the shoes of one of the vaccine manufacturers. What would we think if one of the manufacturers said, oh, all of our vaccines are manufactured in one plant, and that plant has gone offline for the next six months? We would not be happy uh, for good reasons. So to the fact that one factory uh, from one manufacturer was making all of the particular types of formulas uh, clearly seems like a, a, a mistaken strategy. And I think one of the things that has to come out of this is a, a commitment to distribute manufacturing capacity more broadly. 
and to make certain that there's a fulsome investigation into what happened, what caused the delay. I think there are a number of ways that the uh, the government ought to approach this, and maybe lawmakers will ultimately get involved as well. Last question I have for you, Dr. Duggan, is what would you say to moms out there, to grandparents, to dads even, who are concerned about making sure their babies have what they need? If you had to give them sort of a one-two punch of, I would consider these two things, what would that look like? Well, Kevin, I'm glad you brought up the fact that uh, feeding an infant is not just the mother's job, but it really is a family responsibility. Um, And I think certainly for expectant moms out there, uh, we and others have been encouraging lawmakers to make breastfeeding a more readily available option. Uh, As you well know, the United States uh, ranks uh, near last in terms of supporting mothers and families who wish to take time off after having a baby so that successful breastfeeding can occur. Uh, More paid maternity leave would be the best option that our government and our policymakers can take to avoid over-dependence on cow's milk infant formulas and other specialty formulas. Having said that, not all women can breastfeed successfully and not all infants can tolerate uh, human milk. So there's always going to be a, uh, an important market to be served by infant formula manufacturers. What would I recommend to families now? As, as I've said, at the be- since the beginning of this um, shortage, uh, discussing options with your healthcare providers, namely your pediatricians or your registered dietitians, to make sure that choices that you're making the, at the market are comparable to what the formula previously was used. So that's the most important advice I can give. We also spoke with Kelsey Bowler, who's a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, and as it turns out, a new mom. I think we need to address the many different ways this formula shortage is affecting new parents. So for example, myself, I consider myself lucky because with my second child, I was able to nurse him. My first baby, my daughter was in the NICU and she was one of those children who had to be on a specific formula. And so my heart really does go out to all the mothers and fathers who are searching empty shelves, trying to find that specific formula their babies need for uh, their growth and development. I have been in their shoes and I can only imagine how terrifying it is now. Uh, But in my current situation, uh, I, I was blessed to be able to nurse my baby boy who's now six months old. And what's really frustrating is (laughs) for those not familiar with the formula, nursing, inner workings, a lot of parents like myself, moms, will eventually shift from nursing 100% to nursing maybe 50% and supplementing with formula as we get back to work. And what is so personally frustrating with this is had I known about this formula shortage sooner, had President Biden or anyone from his administration sounded the alarms, addressed as soon as this formula manufacturer got shut down in Michigan, that produces more than uh, somewhere around 40% of America's baby formula, had they sounded the alarm sooner and told parents about this, I would have changed my strategy for feeding my baby. I probably would have delayed supplementing with formula. I would have tried to save that formula for parents who needed it. There are so many ways that we as a society could work together to help moms who need to feed their babies. But it's like President Biden didn't even give us that choice, nor did anyone from his administration who appeared to very quietly close down this manufacturing plant without any 
planning or strategy about how they're going to account for a drop in 40% of the nation's baby formula. So when President Biden makes remarks uh, saying, if only I were a mind reader, we could have handled this better. Well, no, you don't have to be a mind reader. You just need to know that the consequences of your administration's actions. When a massive baby formula plant is shut down in February, there are going to be severe shortages following that. And the administration could have and should have taken steps much sooner to address them. Even more shocking when you think about it is there were media reports about shortages going all the way back even before February. Then you have the shutdown. Now we're into June and the the plant in question over in Michigan still is not up and running. By the way, the out of stock rate of baby formula is up to around seven. 70% across the country, in many places even higher. If you've been out, anecdotally, it is very difficult to find, adding to the frustration. Uh, Kelsey, you mentioned that you're a new mom, and believe it or not, there are some lawmakers in particular, one from New York who also happens to be a new mom, who's in your corner, who's working to remedy the problem. Tell me about that. Absolutely. So we need to give credit to House Republican Conference Chair uh, Elise Stefanik, who actually took note of this crisis back in February and did try at least to sound the alarms by sending a letter to uh, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, uh, demanding transparency and accountability uh, on the fact that they recalled a bunch of formula, which uh, we all know is what the, the, the main contributing factor uh, to this formula shortage. So anybody can read this letter. You can see when it was dated back in February, what did the Biden administration do? Her office said that for months they received no substantive response. This is unacceptable. And the fact of the matter is, you know, not all lawmakers were negligent. Perhaps uh, they weren't aware of the, the full scope of what was about to happen, but they had their eyes on this. And it's unfortunate that the, the Biden administration, they claim they didn't, they, President Biden just this week claimed he wasn't made aware of how intense the shortage was until April. Well, you had the highest ranking female Republican in the House, a new mother, no less, sending your administration a letter asking for answers, demanding transparency and accountability. So isn't that just one of many examples where the Biden administration was indeed made aware of the shortage? So there's so many questions that need to be answered about why their response took so long to formulate. For other moms out there uh, whom I'm sure share your frustration, uh, what's your advice to them? What are you doing uh, personally to sort of get around the shortages and, uh, and just share your thoughts of what's happening to moms that you know as we again try to not just share information but also empathize with those who are having to deal with an incredibly difficult circumstance? As mothers, we cannot let this go because if we let this go, it will happen again. And that is why we need transparency and accountability. We need a full comprehensive understanding of how this formula shortage got to the crisis that it is today. Um, and so I think as a society, we need to not you know, not move on from this news story because it very much is a reality that moms and dads across the country are facing every time they walk to the store, every time they go online to purchase formula. It is just not there at the level that it needs to be. And, and moreover, I think we need a larger conversation about 
uh, why so many government regulations impede our ability to import formula from other countries, including Europe, which through my, my research personally as a mother, I feel just as comfortable, if not more comfortable, feeding my baby. We need answers uh, why there are so many government regulations that have enabled the monopolization of the formula industry that had that not been the situation, the landscape, we wouldn't be in, in this crisis that we all face today. Kelsey Bowler joining us with the Independent Women's Forum. Terrific conversation. We appreciate you spending time today. Thanks. Thank you. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington. There's no quick fix to inflation, high gas prices, and grocery bills. President Biden said as much this week. We'll talk with Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, about the economic outlook and fears of an approaching recession. And Jessica Rosenthal will get you set for the next set of primaries. Until then, I'm Jared Halpern. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.